0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Canada's problem with sex assault and sexual harassment in its armed forces goes back about as far as we've had an armed forces. And the military's efforts to do something about that problem go back almost as far. For decades now, the Canadian Armed Forces has been stuck in a cycle. Here's how it starts an awful story emerges, either about one member's experience or about the culture as a whole being permissive of horrific behavior. And the story makes headlines. The military then reacts in one of two ways, either by insisting the incidents are isolated or, increasingly, admitting that there is a problem and promising us that they will tackle it through the military justice system. And that answer works until an intrepid reporter digs into how the military justice system handles the problem and realizes that the military justice system is broken. And then the Canadian Armed Forces and the government promise that a wholesale fix is coming as soon as the committee that they've convened delivers a report with recommendations that they will then implement and everything will get better. And then a few years later, another story breaks. We all look back and realize that for all the reports and recommendations, Nothing much has changed. And that's how we end up in the summer of 2021 with a headline like this. Retired General Jonathan Vance has become the first senior officer charged in relation to the military misconduct crisis. In court documents, military police allege Vance did willfully attempt to obstruct the course of justice in a judicial proceeding. Look, this has been going on forever. It's happening right now. We've long known that this system is ineffectual. We've been told for a long time that repairs to it were underway. So why has none of that actually worked? Why, after two and a half decades of, quote-unquote, reform, is Canada's military justice system still so broken? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Marie Danielle Smith is an Ottawa-based reporter with Maclean's magazine. Hey, Marie Danielle. Hi there. I'm so glad you could join us, and I'm so glad that your piece for Maclean's didn't just focus on the current crisis facing Canada's military justice system, because there's a lot of context to this, and I thought maybe we could start there. I mean, how long has this system been a well-known issue in Canada? Your Maclean's cover story is not the first Maclean's cover story on this issue.
1: It's not. And, you know, you can argue that how long has it been known as an issue? I mean, to Canadian Armed Forces members who have dealt with misconduct, I mean, they would probably tell you even, even farther back. But the, the magazine story you're talking about was a 1998 cover story in McLean's, and the headline was Rape in the Military. And that was sort of the first investigation into the issue that brought sexual misconduct in the forces to national attention.
0: What was the culture back, and not just in 1998, but going back, as you mentioned before that, the culture around investigating and uh, issuing discipline around sex harassment and sex assault? You talked to members of the armed forces going back decades, right?
1: That's right. I spoke with people who had experienced um, misconduct in even the late 70s and in the 80s. And what they described was really an atmosphere of fear and an atmosphere of thinking that there would be reprisals on their own careers were they to report anything. And in some cases, they did see some kind of reprisal. One, one man who spoke to me said that he was sodomized with the handle of a toilet plunger in a men's bathroom not long after he started basic training in B.C. in 1979. And when he reported it, he was basically told to quit. Um, he was expected to just get over with it, uh, and if he couldn't, then the system had no use for him, is, is what he told me.
0: What was the process back then uh, when these things were reported?
1: Well, essentially, and this is still the case today, um, if somebody decides to report to the chain of command, it it really depends on the personal integrity of the person they're reporting to that person can decide to refer the matter to military police and we can get into that whole side of the justice system. But they can also basically decide um, to ignore it. Now, in the last few years, uh, since Operation Honor started and, you know, it's sort of wrapped up now, but since that Marie Deschamps report that came out in 2015, um, there has been a much bigger effort to actually report all of the allegations that come in. Before that, it was often... Unlikely that people would even feel comfortable coming forward, and and that's still the case today.
0: What about as we began to get a sense? I mean, yes, from the McLean's cover story, but also just as we, as a culture, became more aware of how prevalent uh, sex assault and sex harassment were in the military, leading up to the early two thousands. How did the military attempt to address um, what must have been you know, at the very least a PR crisis and probably, uh, hopefully, an existential crisis.
1: It really was. And there's actually another event around the late 90s that that is important to remember, and that was the Somalia Inquiry, right. which looked into the abuses um, from the Canadian Airborne Regiment in 1992 and 1993. So that um, Somalia Commission report came out in 97, and it found evidence of a major institutional cover-up, and it demanded many, many changes to the military justice system. So that, in in tandem with that first reporting on the issue of sexual assault in 98, led to a major piece of legislation in in 98. And that bill was the biggest overhaul to the system to date. Um, We haven't seen any kind of huge, huge changes since then. It introduced things like the Military Police Complaints Commission um, and a a defense ombudsman. And so it created some of these rules that were intended to mitigate some of the problems that they saw. And another thing they did with that bill, and this is something that's heavily criticized now, is they took sexual assault as a criminal offense and they made it something that the military could actually try in its own courts and in its own justice system. Before 98, the military wasn't allowed to do that. So that was a major change and when we look at the way that military has investigated and and prosecuted sexual assault since then, a lot of people would say that that was a huge mistake. Why is that? So there are only so many courts martial um, every year. There's 50 or 60 cases in the military that get up to that level. And sexual assault cases often don't. There are, you know, despite some very large numbers, um, you know, StatsCan in 2018 reported that some 900 regular force members had experienced sexual assault over the preceding year. Well, in the average year, there's only three or four of those cases that are actually prosecuted and brought to trial. So a lot of people would say it's a problem because the military doesn't have a lot of experience actually litigating some of this stuff. And judges don't have as much experience as their civilian counterparts.
0: How different is that record from the records that we have about how police handle sexual assault? I mean, we've reported uh, on the Unfounded series in the Globe and Mail that found that kind of a similar ratio is out there, right? In terms of how many cases get brought uh, to police attention versus how many actually end up in court.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, Now, the unfounded number is actually lower in the military, even though military police say that they investigate um, large numbers of these incidents and deem them to be founded. They only lay charges in, in, um, I think, less than a quarter of cases. So this is something that, in in the civilian system, um, it, it, there's a lot there's a lot more knowledge about, and um, a really important point is that the civilian system has more rights for both the accused and the complainant. Um, so something that uh, actually was legislated in 2019 was a military victims bill of rights, and that is not in place yet. But that is something that would allow. Um, a victim of sexual assault, for example, to make a statement at a sentencing hearing in a court martial. As it stands now, you have judges just a couple years ago essentially saying that you know if a perpetrator allowed somebody to make a statement, the victim to make a statement, that that was somehow a corroborating circumstance that looked favorably on the accused. Hmm. That's not something that happens in the civilian system, and it's one of the things that people will point to. Um, as as one of the problems with prosecuting in the military. one One final point I'll make about this is that in the military, you also have a separate code of service discipline, which includes offenses like things like disgraceful conduct. So it's stuff that's not in the criminal code, but it's stuff that you can be prosecuted for in the military and punished for in the military. And in many cases with sexual assault, what you are seeing in the military is, is plea deals where somebody accused of sexual assault is pleading guilty to a lesser offense under that code of service discipline. And so they are getting punished with things like, you know, a $2,000 fine or a demotion in rank. And, and people will say that that kind of handling of a sexual assault charge really makes it seem like it's, it's a lesser offense in some way than it would be in the civilian system.
0: The big story will be back in just a minute. Just before we get to the 2015 report and, you know, the reckoning that's come after and is still ongoing and is mostly the subject of your reporting. Another difference I'd love to know about between military court and criminal court is just You know, how transparent is it? If I care about a sex assault trial in criminal court, I can go and follow every detail of it if I'm willing to show up in court. The reporting around the same stuff in the military doesn't seem to to make a dent in terms of like the public consciousness.
1: Yeah, you make a really a really good point about that. And I did ask sources to tell me a little bit about that dynamic. And, you know, a military court-martial is actually open to the public in the same way that a civilian trial is. Huh. But um, people complain that there's sort of, uh, if there's a lack of transparency, it's in sort of the last-minute way that courts-martials are, are stood up and And one thing that could maybe um and we'll get into this a little later, I think, but a report from um the former Supreme Court Justice Morris Fish on military justice came out recently. And one thing that he suggested was that a permanent military court be set up because right now they're they're mostly ad hoc. Mm. Um and if you had a permanent military court set up, then you would end up with a situation where, People can attend and know the schedule in advance and and all kinds of decisions can get made with much better efficiency.
0: So let's quickly maybe cover the ground between the changes that came after uh, the 1998-99 crisis report, whatever we want to call it, and the 2015 report. How did the way we examine uh, military justice particularly uh, around uh, sex harassment and assault. How did it evolve and what changed over that period of time prompting uh, the 2015 report, which we'll talk about in a second?
1: So what's interesting is that, in fact, not a whole lot changed. Um, And it was another media report. It was another sort of major public backlash to media reporting in L'Actualité and, again, McLean's in 2014, That led to, I guess, the modern, the more modern reckoning um, that we're seeing. And uh, not long after some reporting came out that suggested that the problem of sexual assault was still extremely severe in the military, the the then chief of defense staff asked for an external review from Marie Deschamps. And it's her report in 2015 that sort of created the impetus for the military to get its act together on this. Something really interesting, actually, about her mandate for that is that she was explicitly barred from looking at the military justice system. Mm. Now, nobody seems to know why that is, but some would speculate that the military preferred to sort of keep her away from looking at Court martials from looking at the way that sexual assault is prosecuted, because perhaps that would sort of lead to an even bigger, an even bigger reckoning and an even bigger problem to fix.
0: So she was looking at why it happens and how to prevent it.
1: She was looking at the underlying culture, which she found was hostile to women and was very permissive of sexual misconduct.
0: And this is where Project Honor came from, right?
1: That's right. Operation honor. And now when you shorten Operation Honor, you get op honor. And a lot of soldiers immediately started to make fun of that, right? Hop honor. Oh boy. So it struggled from the very beginning.
0: There's your culture problem right there.
1: There's your culture problem. And and so this is part of, you know, this sort of immediate reaction. And and should have told them that they had a much, much bigger. <laughs> problem to fix. Right. Now, Operation Honor did try to do a few things. Um, they set up a sexual misconduct response center. Now, that is technically still within the CAF, and a lot of members say that they don't really trust it, even though it says, and I think evidence would support that the complaints that are brought there are kept confidential. There's still this kind of um, perception that it's part of the chain of command and that it, it, it shouldn't be trusted. So uh, There are many recommendations now to strengthen that. Another thing that Operation Honor did was it said, okay, we'll change the way that the military police handle complaints. So it organized um, sexual offense response teams. And I spoke with a military police officer who was on one of those teams. And what he told me was that they basically were a reorganization of of officers who were already doing similar work. Mm. So that was kind of a, a superficial change. And in general, a lot of people feel that Operation Honor dealt mainly in those kind of superficial changes that didn't do anything um, super different structurally, but kind of had the appearance that the military was taking action on this.
0: And what did we learn over the few years following that about whether or not the culture was really changing? And particularly, I guess, uh, and this is where the more recent uh, problems have come up, particularly about the attitude from the very top of the CAF.
1: Right. Well, maybe I'll bring in here an anecdote that I, that I heard through my reporting. And it was that in the, in the wake of the Marie Deschamps report, just a couple of months later, a military member, a current military member who had experienced sexual harassment and whose perpetrator of sexual harassment didn't face any charges, but was sort of let go from the military um, in what she alleges was sort of a tacit understanding that, that he had been doing wrong. Right after the Deschamps report came out, she was offered an apology from a senior leader, a very senior leader in the CAF. And this senior leader apologized for how everything went with, with the investigation against the perpetrator and uh, asked her in the meeting, whether or not she thought that the issue that she faced or the harassment that she faced was part of a systemic problem, as Marie Deschamps had reported, and the current military member says that um, she told him yes, but then he seemed to argue the point and he seemed to think that it wasn't really, couldn't really be that, couldn't really be his guys, right? And so I think that attitude of all my guys are are not the problem, or mm-hmm. this isn't really as big of a deal as it's uh, purported to be. That kind of attitude seems to have really been present in the senior ranks over the last few years, and um, the, the reckoning we see now with many, many senior leaders either stepping aside or um, being pushed out because of unspecified allegations of misconduct, um, it really drives home for a lot of people in the military and a lot of former military members that, wow, like people really weren't taking this issue seriously. And, and there was a lot of hypocrisy right at the top when they said that they were working to fix it.
0: So if we look at the Deschamps report and any of its recommendations, and I know you said a lot of people view it as kind of superficial in the way it was acted upon. Was there anything put forward in that report or, or even previous to that that really could have actually uh, given this some teeth, could have made a difference, could have uh, changed, if not necessarily the culture, then at least how the military responds to allegations?
1: That's a really interesting question. Now, the report itself didn't look at military justice, but um, there are lots of things about the military justice system that would lend much greater confidence in, this, in people's ability to report problems and to report um, misconduct and then to see justice. One of the things that actually a lot of people talk about right now is this idea of some kind of independent oversight body, some kind of independent investigator who could receive complaints and act on them completely outside of the chain of command in the way that military police and military judges aren't, since those people are still currently members of the Canadian Armed Forces. And... Uh, funnily enough, if we go all the way back to the Somalia Commission report, that's where such a role was actually recommended, right. and and maybe even before that. But that's where a a role of um, inspector general was very loudly recommended by the commission. And that 1998 bill that we were talking about earlier in this conversation did not create that kind of a role. They created a weaker version of that in the, in the Defense Ombudsman. But a lot of people who are, you know, sitting in front of parliamentary committees today and testifying about this issue would say that that sort of independent inspector role would have actually, uh, you know, maybe prevented some of some of what we're seeing now.
0: Has our current federal government made an attempt to address this issue since uh, 2015? And if so, you know, what do the people you speak to think of it?
1: Well, the Canadian government has certainly said that it uh, takes this issue seriously. And any actions that, you know, the Defense Department and the Canadian Armed Forces took, including, you know, setting up the Sexual Misconduct Response Center, those were under the watch of the current defense minister, right? But you have a lot of people arguing that, you know, he's been in the job for six years, he's got countless reports and recommendations on his hands. Why hasn't he done more than that, right? Even the stuff that he did legislate, like that Victims' Bill of Rights that I mentioned before— that hasn't been implemented yet, and that's under his watch too. So why is it why is it taking more than two years for the military to go ahead with something that parliament legislated? Um, and you see this in lots of other areas too. Um, the military's grievance system is broken, and there are administrative punishments and summary punishments sort of at lower levels than the court-martials we talked about before. But where commanding officers have an extreme amount of control over what happens to a soldier. And, and all of these kind of different parts of the system that we talk about a lot less, but that are still very, very present in the lives of servicemen and women, all of these things um, could be changed with legislation, right? And all of these things could be changed with regulation. And, and, and that's stuff that Minister Sajin is is ultimately responsible for. So he certainly could have done a lot more.
0: So where does that leave us in terms of what happens next? We just talked about a couple of comprehensive reports from uh, five years ago and more than 20 years ago. And we also just talked about a lot of things that still need to be done. I guess my question is, is there already a plan that exists that needs to be acted upon or even just like a, a general consensus of like the big steps that should be taken? or? Are we almost at square one in terms of like, and I hate to say this with this government, but in terms of another commission and another report and then see what happens?
1: Right. Well, now what, what they have basically done is, is yes, is said another report. So we've got another former Supreme Court Justice, Louise Arbour, who has a mandate. Now, it is much broader than the Sha mandate. It is allowed to look at military justice. And so she is. She is going to be looking at the issue of sexual misconduct in depth and providing recommendations that the government anticipates following. But even more recently than that, and and something I alluded to earlier, this report from Justice Fish. It's a it's a review of the uh, military justice system, a mandatory review that you know uh, by legislation is required to happen every number of years, mm-hmm. and that recommendation. Uh, Sorry, that report made 107 recommendations. And I will say that every expert I talk to, from military lawyers to people on the ground to advocates for victims, everybody thinks that this report is really solid. And the government has accepted all of those recommendations in principle. So now what we need to watch for is whether those actually get done, because there's a lot of beefy stuff in that report and recommendations that could really change the military justice system and give members a lot more confidence in it. And that would go a long way towards solving this pernicious problem.
0: Is there any chance that that gets done before this election we keep talking about we're about to have?
1: Doesn't seem like it.
0: So this is going to be an election issue again, maybe?
1: I think it'll be an election issue if Canadians open their eyes to the problem and maybe get beyond some of the sort of surface scandals that we have seen, you know, obviously this, the issues that senior leadership are, are important and symbolically really important and and lead to major morale issues in the military. But if we go beyond that and we look at the structural and systemic problems and we decide as a nation that we really care about that and that we really care how we treat the people in our military who are supposed to be going out there um, you know, and fighting for democracy and all kinds of things that, that we kind of collectively believe in. If we care about that and, and it is an election issue, then I guess I'll be pleasantly surprised, unfortunately. Um, but it certainly is on the table, I think, um, as we look at whether we think this government has done a good enough job.
0: That's a great answer. And maybe uh, lastly, just to ask you to, to put your reporting to the side and focus on what you just said. Why do you think that hasn't happened yet? Why do you think this has never really made an impact in terms of the average Canadian voter demanding better from their military?
1: Well, I think, you know, the military has often appeared to act, right? You look at Operation Honor, as much as it didn't seem to work, it looked like the military was doing something. And so I think it sort of brought attention. Back away from it. Another thing that I would say, and you told me to sort of set my reporting aside, but but something that I learned through the process of trying to understand all of this is that it's extremely extraordinarily complicated. It's really complex. It's a really hard to understand system because it's parallel to the civilian system in so many ways, but there are key differences that that prove to be really. Um, really consequential in terms of the confidence people have in it and and to understand the differences to understand what needs to happen to change it it's it's no small feat and I think that you know it can be difficult for the public to latch on to some of this kind of more systemic stuff as an issue like I say you know it's possible to decide to be interested in this but you have to do quite a bit of work to understand it and I guess that's where my pessimism comes from
0: Well, I hope this conversation helps some people understand it. It certainly helped me. Thank you so much, Marie-Danielle. Thank you. Marie-Danielle Smith of McLean's. That was The Big Story. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us tweeting away at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us if you're sad or mad or happy or whatever. We're at the Big Story Podcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. You can also find us in your favorite podcast player, literally all of them. We're there. You can find us in your smart speaker as well. Just ask it to play the Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.